cup or so of blood just started pouring out of my prosthetics because it was just like hamburger meat from all the friction and the sweat and the salt. When you see a buck you want, you become obsessed with it. It's almost like the hot girl at school. It's just like, oh my gosh, I, I have to have you. As exciting as that sounds, it just sounds off to me why you would make hunting a competition. The doctor's still like, that's why he's still alive is that He's finding a purpose, he's hunting, he's having a drive, and that's what's keeping him alive. I'll, t I'll tell you this, I I've blown a lot of stocks, and each one of them, the benefit of it is I've learned something from it. This is Sydney Smith, and you're listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. I've been blessed to harvest 22 of the 29 North American animals with my bow. My personal 24-hour record for death threats is 88. They will start putting two and two together and realize this is how you call bulls in. So when I go hunting now, that's the ethos I take with me. You know, whatever, whatever this hunt is going to throw at you, you pull your big girl pants up and you get on with it. Giant bucks are freaking awesome. They're beautiful. But you know what? I would not trade this first buck for anything in the world. So I'm really, I'm a geek. Magicians and dragons and magic swords. <laughs> I shit you not, man. I am the biggest dork in the gun business. I'm Freddie Hartice, Hollywood Hunter. This is Aaron Snyder. Hey, this is Trevin Stoltzfus with Outback Outdoors. This is Rihanna Carey. Hi, this is John Sloan of the Interviews with the Haunting Masters. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey, y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative, brought to you as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Folks, we are throwing it back to one of the first, uh, I guess, two dozen of my, my podcasts. Throwing it back to episode 23 here. Bringing back the one and only Sydney Smith. Sid, man, thanks so much for uh, hopping on with me. Oh, man, thank you. It's a pleasure. No problem at all. You know, so we were, we were talking before this and, uh, you know, I was just, I was kind of laughing because I was just thinking, I'm like, you know, I was scrolling through Instagram and, you know, you'd, you'd made a post about something and I was liking it. And I was, 
was like, oh yeah, it wasn't that long ago. I'm like, what, what was the episode number I'd sit on? I look back, I'm like, there's no way it was only episode 23. It's no way it was that long ago. Well, I figured I just did a bad job. Like, oh my gosh, we're never talking to that guy again. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> no, it's just, I mean, it's so funny. It's hard to, it's hard to believe. Like this will be, I think episode 164. Wow. I mean, congratulations. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Thanks. But you know, man, you know, I can say, uh, you know, I knew you back in the day, back before, uh, back before you were all like this big deal with films and, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> I and think the, I had, I had, uh, I wasn't going bald then, but now I am. So <laughs> that's what's happening. I don't know, man. You just, yeah, that's, that's nice thing about the hunting industry. There's always plenty of hats to wear. Always. Yeah. People throwing them at you left and right. Yeah. <laughs> it is. I don't have a shortage of hats. That's for sure. Oh man. Yeah. Well, so, ask my wife. I think that's one of her pet peeves. Like uh, I'll get a hat in the mail and she'll be like, Oh, let me guess another hat. And I always try to act super excited. I'm like, Lori, she, that's my wife. And I go, Lori, guess what came in the mail today? You're not going to believe it. Look at, look at, look at, look at. She's like, no, I just, I don't want to see any hats. So. <laughs> it's, it's kind of stressful to some extent, like when you're going on a trip, because it's a very critical choice you then have to make. Like when you're when you're leaving, which hats am I going to take here? Like, you know, because you got to have your your ones for hunting. You got to have your your uh, your night out hats, right? Yeah, your, your night out hats. Yeah, definitely one. You, I, I do wear a lot of hats. So that's a, it's a good thing I'm in in this industry because I like I like a different different selection of hats, but, uh, um, yeah, you're right. I, and the thing is, is I, I also have my favorite hats and I, like I wash them, they're nasty, they get all salty and, and, uh, and then I have a nice hat. So, well, that's the, that's the funny thing. It's like, I've got my one hat and it's from back when I was in living country in the city, I've worn it on every hunt I've gone on. It's like my hunting hat. That thing has never been washed. It never will be washed. It, it, it will, it will disintegrate around me. Like the day that hat gets retired is the day it will like physically not stay on my head and I can't keep it together with duct tape. Like, oh, I have some good luck hats like that. In fact, I still have your living country in the city hat that I got from you. That's uh, but, uh, I only have, I have the ones I wear and then I have like one or one, maybe two left from that. Like, so that's, that's like a vintage collectible item. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's worth anything, but it's collectible. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But, it's true. Yeah, man. So I was just thinking about. Uh, I was just thinking about how things have changed since we've since we've had the podcast. You uh, and I was thinking about kind of when it changed, mm -hmm. uh, and because I, I was thinking about the um, the mountain ops, the Camhains trail run at my first total archery challenge. Yeah, that's the first time I think I met you in person. Yeah. But yeah. And, yeah. And that I was uh, Total Archer Challenge, Park City. No, I remember was it Park City? Snowbird. No, that was Snowbird. Snowbird. That was before Park City. And I, I remember, you know, thinking I was in pretty decent shape and that, that altitude pretty severely uh, made me realize how <laughs> not ready I was. And I just remember chugging up the hill, chugging up the hill. And I was, I was losing pace and losing pace and dropping back and starting to walk. All of a sudden, I feel this hand on my back, <laughs> not just like pat me on the back and kind of give me a nice little push, but this hand 
just grab the back of my collar and literally shove me up the mountain. <laughs> and I turn around. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. Got you, got you sitting there giving me grief. <laughs> uh, actually, I was just grabbing onto you to ha- hopefully you can pull me up the mountain. So, we'll oh, get- there we go. We'll go with we'll go with that one. We'll go with that one. <laughs> But yeah, and then uh, I remember later that day, uh, you and Trevor Farns met, yep. and lo and behold, things started happening. Yeah, that's an interesting. That was a, a turning point, in, you know, with the Mountain Ops team. They they've always been, you know, good guys, and and uh, but yeah, that's when I first met Trevor and uh, chatted with him, and the rest has been history. But yeah, the good group of guys. They put on a great event, Utah boys, and so uh, I've always always been a fan of them and. Can't, can't complain. So when did the, how long ago was it the film, the, the film came out? Was it that year or was it the following? It, it was the following. Um, it's kind of, it was an interesting transition. That year I, I started a new job and the company that I work for, uh, it's a phone company, a local phone company here in the Uinta Basin. And they also have a multimedia business as well. They do on the side that they were trying to start up. And they approached me uh, around the same time. Mountain Ops said, hey, we'd love to do kind of a backstory on you. And, you know, would you be okay if sharing your story and talk about your life's goals as being a double amputee? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. But I kind of felt torn because like, I got, you know, Mountain Ops, which I've, you know, built, trying to build a relationship with. And I also have uh, my company. And... Um, I just kind of pitched the idea if they could work, if they would be willing to work together. And, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. They mountain ops in a company called V6 media uh, worked together and was able to produce a film. It was about the time uh, when I was in the process of hunting with double prosthetics. And then just kind of like my goal of becoming an Ironman, that was my big goal. And I was, you know, doing a few triathlons. I got to a half Ironman status and I was, training for a marathon and I was, you know, working my way to, to train for a full Ironman. And that's kind of where the film finished is right there. So how did, how did the Ironman prep end up turning out? (laughs) It was good. I had some ups and downs like the next year we, we were going to do a marathon and uh, we were actually had a schedule to do a film. And it was like the week before my race, I, we went to, LA to go take the kids to Disneyland. And I thought, Oh, let's, let's go to the beach. Cause my kids not f- ever been to the beach. Um, and, uh, I'll try surfing without any prosthetic legs. How fun would that be? That was a bad idea. So I, <laughs> I ended up cr- crashing off the board and my stump hit like a rock and I had broke, uh, the bridge between my tibia and fibia. So at that point, um, my, uh, race was done. Uh, but uh, after that, yeah, it was it was it was demoralizing. Like it, I was really frustrated. It took me like eight weeks till I could start walking again. And I was gonna maybe look at trying to squeeze in another marathon. But um, I just thought, you know what? I have this window where I feel like I can do this Ironman. And so that fall, you know, 2019, the following year is when um, I trained to do the Ironman. And in November is when the race was. And how the how the race turn out? Uh, it was, it was amazing. Life changing. I, it, it, it definitely was something that, uh, was very emotional 
something that hit me on very different levels, mentally and physically. Uh, it was my ultimate goal that I made when I was in the hospital, uh, when I lost my legs, uh, to do the Ironman. It was actually on TV, and I thought, hey, if this is, if this is something possible, I'm going to make it my goal. And it ended up being more than just a goal. It was having that goal was driving me from looking at life at, on a negative aspect. Like I looked at everything positive. I tried to always turn things into um, a learning experience with the hard work. Because with training for an Ironman, doing the Ironman itself is hard. But that's not the hard part. It's the dedication, the money, the time away from your family, uh, the physical pain on your stubs. And then just overall training 20 plus hours a week of just running and swimming and biking. And so it was just a big iconic thing for me to do the race. And, and my wife was there, which was very important to me that she was there for the race. It was down in Florida. And uh, um, just because she sacrificed just as, you know, as much as me in a way to do this race. And so it, it took me 16, uh, a little over 16 hours to do it. The swim was awesome actually came out with some high record times in the swim. The bike was uh, good. It wasn't bad. It's about average. And then the run, <laughs> the run was pretty tough. Uh, but I got through the before they, they have a cutoff. Um, so you can still be considered an Ironman. So in fact, ironically, I'm in my office. I got the, the medal right here. I know your, your listeners can't see it, but I look at it every day when I'm here and just kind of reminds me of, you know, anything's possible. So, so, what were what were some of the issues that you ran into on the run and and how did you how did you tackle them as you as you kind of as i guess you know i'm sure you went into the the whole iron man you know with a plan you're like this is how i'm going to do it this is how things are going to happen and and how i'm going to handle it but i'm sure stuff came up you may have hit a wall you may have come up against some unexpected challenges what what were some of those that you encountered? Well, it it actually was the game plan. I have I had a coach for this event, and um, he has uh, specialized in other individuals with um, physical disabilities to do triathlons. Um, this is, would be his first amputee to do an Ironman, but just over my experience of doing races, every single long distance race uh, on a triathlon is. Uh, where I start getting cuts and my my bones start getting shin splints in them. Uh, so we we knew going in that the run was going to be the hardest. So training for it, we wanted to make sure that this coming out of the water that I feel amazing, coming off the bike, I feel fresh. And so a lot of my time was swimming and biking. But every time I did that, I always ran just a little bit. And then you know, I went you know, every once in a while we do, you know, 10 miles or 20 miles here just to try to get that endurance in. But training for the race was a lot different from what other people do, where I actually focus more on the swim and the, the bike. But yeah, starting the run, it was really, it, you know, there was some tears shed between me and my wife at the beginning because we knew that this was going to be hard, you know, 26 miles, you know, so you know, started the race, it was, it was going well. For the first, uh, I don't remember quite off the top of my head, it was like the first six miles, I thought I was going to do okay. And then my stomach would could not take any more calories. So I started throwing up. And then I was worried about being hydrated. So I start drinking and then I throw that up. 
And finally, I had a, I, in my little um, emergency uh, fanny pack. Don't judge me. I had a fanny pack. <laughs> uh, I, had, I had some like Imodium. I took that, some Tums, and I started just what tasted really good was like chicken broth and Coke. So I just take chicken broth and Coke at different miles. And I eventually got through it. It wasn't until about mile 17 when like I started hitting that wall that we were talked about. And it wasn't necessarily my endurance was bad. It was my stumps. Like uh, normally when I run, my stumps start to shrink uh, because of like the loss of water and, and just the sweating and stuff. Uh, but in this case, because of all the beating, um, it they started to inflame. And so uh, I would, it would feel like, you know, someone like an Indian burn or something, someone just squeezing your skin super tight. And so I hurry and took my prosthetic leg to get the blood flow back in there. And then I put it back on and then I start running, you know, another mile. And then it got to the point where like my knees started to to go numb because it was pinching the nerves. And so I took it off. And at that point, it was just maybe like, you know, a half a cup or so of blood just started pouring out of my prosthetics because it was just just like hamburger meat from all the, the the friction and the sweat and the salt and stuff like that. And so you put the leg back on and, and I just didn't know how much further I could go. Cause I was worried that if I took the leg off too far or too long, excuse me, that I wouldn't be able to get the prosthetic on. Um, and uh, so I would only go like maybe 15, 20 feet and then I had to pop it off, put it back on. And I was just looking at my watch and I was like, Oh my gosh, if I continue to do this, I'm not going to make the cutoff, which is about 17 plus hours. So finally uh, it just, I found something that was just, you know, in my mind to think about, you know, all the good things that have happened to me, all the things to be grateful for, like, you know, my wife and my kids and the fact that I'm even out here doing this race, my hands, my, my eyesight um, and just started focusing on being grateful about everything instead of, you know, thinking about the problems that are just right here in my lap. And, and I, you know, I still don't know to this day how it all happened, but I was able, uh, it was just, you know, I got to the last mile and I can hear the, the famous announcer, announcer, you know, started yelling people's names and, you know, I'm just coming around the corner and you can hear him through the speakers saying, Sydney Smith, the double amputee is just right around the corner. Everybody cheer. And, and I was just, you know, just mind blowing how exciting that was. And, the, you know, of course, cross the finish line was, was probably, you know, some of the most amazing moments of my life. So whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. So, you know, when you're, I want to say, what'd you say? Was it 17 miles in, you said? Yeah. That really started happening? 17 miles is when, when I was starting to feel that, you know, the hair on the back of my neck stand up thinking, Oh my gosh, this, I can't believe this could happen. It's starting to get worried, I guess. Say. So. so what, you know, you said you're worried, like what, what's the conversation you're having in your mind at that point? Like, what do you tell yourself to push through something like that? Cause I mean, you said it, you're, 
your stump was hamburger meat at that point. It was bleeding. Yeah. It was, I mean, there's got to be something inside of you that's kind of telling you like, why am I doing this? Is this worth it? Yeah. Well, of course. And, and I, I had a lot of people leading up to the race. Um, even my parents, my parents were probably the ones that really didn't want me to do this for a long time. My wife deep down didn't want me to do this. Uh, she knew I was very stubborn and that it would kill me if I didn't. You know, I started thinking, man, you know, is this worth it? And, and uh, there's only been, you know, at this point, I think I was the fourth double amputee that had done the race. And so I was just thinking, man, maybe this isn't designed to, to be, you know, on, done on prosthetics. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, people that are amputees that do it in like the wheelchairs or the, the, the hand cycles. But so I just taught myself from day one from this pr- procedure that if you listen to those thoughts, it's just going to become a spiral. And then as soon as you start looking at excuses like, well, I've, I deserve this. I, you know, I, that's good enough. Um, and that's, and that's the most dangerous thought when it comes to doing something challenging is to think in your mind, it's good enough. And so I just told myself, it's not going to be good enough. You're, if you finish, if you quit now, you're going to be coming right back here. Um, and, and it's going to kill you. This is, you have to, you have to get through this. And ultimately a lot of the mental prep, which is a huge part of the race is just, just think positive, you know, especially on the run when, when I'm thinking, man, you know, halfway through the run. So, which is about 13 miles, it's an out and back. And when you have to go out back and get, it's already nighttime. So you're running in the dark. And when you make that first out and back, you're already exhausted because you've already done, you know, hundred and, you know, 25 plus miles. And you're thinking, you know, how am I going to go out and back again? And uh, I told myself not to even think that. Don't even think those thoughts. Just constantly have your mind on it. And if you find yourself slipping back, you almost have to pinch yourself and just say, I, I, that's exactly what I did. I just kept thinking about the positivity of, of, of life um, and pushed through it. And uh, honestly, I, like I said, I don't know how I got to the finish line. You know, I don't know if an Uber picked me up or what, but I, <laughs> I got there. So no, an Uber did not pick me up, but I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, that's so critical. And anyone that's listened to the podcast for a while has heard me talk about the idea of, you know, setting your measures of success. And typically I talk about it from the other perspective of, okay, you may not reach your ultimate goal, but if you have reasonable measures of success along the way, you can walk away successful. Um, And that works in some situations, but there are other situations where you set your measure of success and it's important that you don't have a plan B, mm. that you have your plan A, which is to complete that Ironman. Mm. And if you even give yourself a luxury of thinking that there's a plan B, that, that oh, just participating is good enough. Oh, I've, I made a good showing. That's good enough. Suddenly, that does all kinds of things to your mindset, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. The, the, the recommendation I got was my brother's a a runner he ran in college and like, well, why don't you do the swim and the bike and your brother could do the run. And I'm like, it's like, it, you're, you, you'd get a medal. Yeah. He get a medal. It's, but it's not the medal. I can care less about the medal. It's the medal is just there to remind you what happened. 
And it, it's it that if that option was even there, like if my brother was waiting in the stands ready to take over the baton, that would have been that probably could probably would have ruined my race. Um, but yeah, you're right. Having a plan B sometimes is not a good thing to have because it's just it's again it's that back pocket, and in the end, it's just an excuse. Well, it's kind of like it's almost like hunting. It's like okay, you know, you go out on a hunt with someone you scout the whole thing, you sit there, you know, you creep in on an animal and you take a, you take a shot. You maybe, maybe you wound the animal, your buddy, your buddy next to you takes a shot and finishes it off for you. And he's like, well, you can, uh, you can keep the antlers if you want. <laughs> it's like, eh. you know, it's like, ah. yeah, it's not the same. You no. know, you, uh, you didn't, you didn't complete it. It's not about having something shiny to be able, I mean, and don't get me wrong. Yeah. I know there's people that probably participate in Ironmans because they want that metal to show off. Mm -hmm. I know there's people that go out and hunt, you know, and I hesitate to even call them hunters that solely do it for, you know, having a trophy to show off after the fact. Those are typically also the people that tend to do sketchy things out in the woods. Yeah. Um, and honestly, it's I, I would imagine it's probably the same in the in something like the triathlon or the Ironman circuit as well, to where the people that are just doing it so they can claim that they have a, a victory and show off that medal when there's no deeper, there's nothing deeper behind it. Those are the people that in the end, you know, if they found a way to maybe shave off a couple of miles on their on their trip mm -hmm. or do something a little sketchy when nobody's looking, you know, if that, if that end goal is, is just to have that trophy, have that medal, and there's nothing deeper behind it. Those aren't the kind of people I necessarily want to be, surround myself with. No, and no. And unfortunately there are a few um, I've met some, I've caught some people doing that, not at the Ironman, but at other races. And yeah, you nailed it on the head. Hunting is very, can be very similar. And unfortunately, I, as much as I, I love Instagram for the reason or Facebook, social media for the reason where it's, it's a great networking tool. It's good to meet people. You know, it's the way I journal things to share my stories, what's going on. You know, if people follow, that's great. If they're inspired, you know, that's awesome. But what bugs me is the people that are doing things that are, you know, you're right. They're shady in the woods just so they can get that recognition. And that's where I'm like, Oh, I don't know if that there's, there's a, program coming out that I don't know how I feel. You probably, I don't want to offend anybody, but there's like a, no, I don't want to say names, so I won't say names, but there's like a competition where you have two different teams and they're battling against each other who can kill the biggest duck buck and the biggest bull and those points combine. And that's who makes them the, the, the hunting competition. And I just, you know, as exciting as that sounds, it just sounds off to me why you would make hunting a competition. Maybe, maybe that's how people do it. But uh, for me, it seems a little off to me. It, I can't exactly put my finger on why it seems off because, but it just, it kind of like you, you just, the way you describe it, like it just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I can't exactly, I guess, elucidate why it does because, you know, we talk a lot and, you know, it's scoring animals. That's, you know, like Boone and Crockett and it has a history and conservation 
and all of that. And, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like you're out in the woods with your buddies and, you know, you're, or you're at deer camp or something. And of course, everyone's trying to get the biggest buck out there and you're going to go back to camp and you guys are going to talk crap to each other and this and that. And, and I, but I don't know something about that just feels like it, it takes away from the uh, true meaning of it. When you gamify something that's actually, that's, I mean, let's face it, it's taking a life. It's a, Mm -hmm. it's a pretty damn serious thing. Mm -hmm. And everyone's got their own reasons for it and their own, I guess, perspective and direction they come from. But for the most part, ethical hunters have the general same set of, of reasons behind it. But it, it, I don't know, it cheapens it when you gamify it like that. I think maybe, maybe that's it. I don't know. And and maybe that, I don't know enough about this, you know, organization that's, that's doing this competition. Um, but uh, maybe they are going to turn into something like that. Cause you're right. I mean, I, when I go hunting, the reason I've been out, you know, three weeks, two weeks now, and uh, I've passed on quite a few smaller bucks. And you think about it, why would I do that? You know, cause I want a mature deer. That's what I hate about mule deer over elk hunting is when you see a buck you want, you become obsessed with it. It's almost like the hot girl at school. It's just like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I, I have to have you. <laughs> that's what I, that's the one thing I do hate about mule deer is that it's like, it turns into, instead of shooting a nice deer, you have to shoot the deer and it's, it's uh, yuck. It's funny. I feel like there's something about mule deer when you see them. Uh, and I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, like way back, but you know, you see, there's something about like a big mule deer, like a really big mule deer. When you see it, like it's just impactful, like huge elk are, are really impactful as well. Don't get me wrong, but I feel like you can see, you can see like a decent sized satellite bull and then you can see a monster elk and the, like the level of impact on, like on you when you're like, Holy crap is, you know, fairly equivalent. You may get a little more excited over one, but when you see like, that really big mule deer, something about it. Like, yeah, I don't know. Another thing I can't put my finger on what it is. And I'm an elk guy. Don't get me wrong. Like I love elk. Um, but yeah, you see that when you, you see some big mule deer, but when you see that really, that, that monster buck, Oh man, that'll get you going. Yeah. Like you said, turns you obsessive. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it is, you know, for where I hunt, it's the, the mule deer, you know, I have a lot of falls all summer long. I could see them. I could scout for them. I dream about them even before the <laughs> hunt where the elk, you know, a lot of it is, you know, you kind of wait till the rut comes and where I see them in the summer, they're nowhere near, you know, come September. And so I just, it's almost like, Oh, that's a nice elk. I will never see you again, but I'll take care buddy. Uh, <laughs> for deer, it just becomes, becomes obsessive and, uh, pocket is my favorite my wife on the other hand it's kind of funny because i've been you know i just went out last night uh to try to go find a buck and uh, my wife's like oh you know good luck on your hunt kill an elk i'm like honey i, I don't it's not elk yet it's deer so i can't do that <laughs> it's because she likes the meat i gonna say oh there you go i'm i'm excited this year because i've uh i mean it comes down to this year, I think is going to come down to whether or not I can shoot when it comes to the elk. 
I mean, I think I'm not sure if I even told you, but uh, uh, I drew Arizona Strip with <laughs> three points. <laughs> yeah, uh, everybody hates you for that. I bet. Yeah, it's funny. Everyone, everyone's like, it's that mix of like, I'm so excited for you, but I hate you so much right now. Uh, um, but I'm going, I'm going guided this year because there's no way I'm letting pride waste this tag for me. Uh, going with John Stallone. And uh, he's also been sending me pictures of some uh, some of the hit list bowls as well that he's been keeping an eye on, which is always it's a cool thing to see. But it's also a little frustrating because I've been talking with him and it's you. I mean, you know how it is. You even kind of mentioned it You're like you see you see this bowl before the rut starts. Who knows? It could be 20, 40 miles away by the time, you know, you're out there with your bow. So it's uh, you hope they're going to stick around. But. Long story short, I'm I'm thinking this year is coming down to whether or not I can shoot, yeah, rather than whether or not I can hunt. And so I've been I'm a little nervous about that, but I'm excited. You know, I'm I'm thinking this is going to be a freezer filler year, and I'm excited to have that meat and to have to hopefully buy another chest freezer. So we'll see how that goes. Oh, dude, I'm excited for you too. I overheard a podcast you did with James, uh, Captain James Nass, and I. I heard about that. I think that's when I first heard. I'm like, oh man, he's gonna love that. Did you, did you change up your arrows at all? Or you got still same same setup. Oh no, I changed up the arrows after after my conversation with him. He and I talked for like an hour almost afterwards, just even more about arrow setups. And uh, yeah, no, I'm shooting. Uh, I just actually just put the broadheads on, and I'm gonna do some broadhead tuning uh, today and tomorrow before I leave. But, uh, yeah, no, I'm shooting. I went from like, I went from some decently heavy arrows. Like I was shooting, I want to say 500 grains almost, um, somewhere around the 500 mark. I bumped that up a little bit. I think I'm shooting almost 600 now nice. and I've got those si- single bevel, uh, doing the kudu point broadheads, yeah. except, except it's thrashing my dang target. Now those big old arrows, they're punching all the way through my, my Reinhardt target. <laughs> And it's like all of a sudden I went from like a decently assembled uh, uh, foam target to now it's all all the foam is scattered all over my backyard <laughs> from punching through that thing. No, having but I'll take it. Having a heavy arrow is good. I, I was teasing James. I go, hey, I heard, buddy, that uh, you shoot rebar for your uh, for your arrows. <laughs> and he goes, well, that that might be true if if they would come in a point oh oh one straightness. <laughs> I got a chuckle out of that. So that's pretty good. So what are you, uh, what are you shooting this year? How about you? What's your, what's your setup for uh 2020? Uh, my bow setup or my, my hunting setup? Well, shoot, let's go with both. Why not? Ah, I love talking bows. I'm uh shooting Easton's, uh, Easton access. Um, let's see. I got the prime, uh, CT three. I love my prime. It's probably my favorite. This, this CT3 that I'm shooting now is probably my favorite bow. Um, I use the Burris range finding site called the Burris Oracle. I love that. Hemsky rest. I, uh, I kind of go back and forth between crossover stabilizer and um, a new company called uh, Cutter. The only reason why some things I like about Cutter is that it's a little more compact in the wind. But yeah, I love my bow setup uh, this year for hunting. I have the dedicated deer tag for Utah. So it's the program you do service hours and you can hunt three deer or excuse me, harvest three deer 
in, excuse me, let me start over. You can harvest two deer in the next three years and you can hunt all three seasons. So you can hunt uh, archery, um, rifle and muzzleloader. And so this is my first year um, of the three year program. And so I, I've been a little bit more selective on deer, um, but at the same time it's, you know, I've kicked myself on passing some bucks. So I'm just like, man, I'll just get this over with sometimes. And, <laughs> but yeah, that's what I'm hunting right now. Uh, and then I have a, a Utah rifle tag starting in September, but that's kind of where I'm at. It's uh, I, I will say that's the, that's the nice thing about having kicked off the business here is I, I get to steal away a, a little bit more time. I don't have to I don't have to worry about uh, requesting PTO anymore, anything like that. I just have to worry about, well, not doing any work and not getting paid. <laughs> but, yeah. No, I. Uh, you mentioned the ham ski rest. Uh, last year, I think, was my first year using it. Oh, how do you like it? I love it. I was shooting a whisker biscuit before. And I mean, I did it just because I was like, I, I don't, I don't, I can't figure out one more thing to tune or to play with. Like, and I shot a whisker biscuit for years, but switching up to that, that rest was life changing for me. My, my shots have become, I mean, it's just, it's such a better device. What? So you mentioned you're shooting the, the Easton axis arrows. Yeah. What's the rest of your setup on your arrows? Um, I have hundred grain tip. Excuse me, 125 broadhead. I'm using uh, AAE hybrids um, fletchings. Um, it comes out about 519 for weight, 300 spine. Uh, nothing, nothing too fancy dancy. But what broadheads are you using for the different? Uh... It's called Dead Meat. I'm using. Uh, it's a mechanical. I uh, I know I'm probably gonna get crap for that, but I've. It's just one of those things. It's that I, it's worked for me. I've never had any problems and I get paranoid to think about trying something new, but it's, uh, it seems to be working for me. So I don't know, man, do we need to, do we need to sick, uh, James Nash on you? Uh, rebar. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure he'll give me crap for that. No problem. There. <laughs> I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I was, I love, I love my severs. I was using, uh, I was using mechanicals prior to this and I, I love them, but I just, you know, after sitting down with him and like him just really talking through kind of the science behind them, I was sold. I was like, okay, I'll give it a try. And I mean, I'll probably still use my severs for, for, for other stuff, like maybe even deer definitely, you know, end up using them for hog and for, probably even for Turkey and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I think for elk or anything, you know, if I ever God willing end up on a moose hunt or something, uh, I think I'm so far, I've really been liking these kudu points, broadheads, reasonably priced. They're a local, fairly local company for me. And, uh, there's something also just kind of cool about having a giant 150 grain solid hunk of metal hanging off the end of your arrow. Oh yeah. Um, so you've been, uh, you've been out chasing, chasing deer so far. How, how's your season been going? Otherwise, did you get out after any pronghorn this year? Anything for elk coming up? Yeah, no deer season's been, been going well. Um, 
I've had some pretty good opportunities, uh, some stocks. I think that's being a double amputee. That's probably the hardest is just, you know, being able to crouch because I don't have that ankle uh, to flex downward. So to crouch, it's like, you know, walking on your tippy toes and crouching at the same time. It's really, really hard to do. Um, so and I've been actually, doing, trying different things like a, I was going to interrupt you. That was something, you know, we talked a lot, I think in in the first episode, we talked a lot about like, you know, carrying weight with your legs and how that works in the backcountry and the different, you know, mm. like having legs suited for that. We never really talked, I think, about stocking as with the prosthetics, mm-hmm. because that's got to be there's got to be a lot of added challenges. Cause I know, you know, there's certain ways to walk. You don't have as like you were, like you were saying, you don't have as much articulation mm-hmm. to, you know, I know some guys like do the sides of their feet. Some guys do their tiptoes, this, that, and the other that I I'm actually super interested in the, in your stocking method as an amputee. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you this. I, I've blown a lot of stocks and each one of them, the benefit of it is I've learned something from it and how to do it a little bit better. So I guess some of the tips I would give out, maybe there's other guys that are listening, is, uh, you know, first of all, we don't have the capability of rolling the foot. So find something like some heavy socks. I use, I use like these leather moccasins and uh, I just slide those on. I also had done like even on a turkey, um, if it makes it possible, I've even taken my legs off and uh, just gone with my stumps and crawled but a friend of mine had given me a decoy that attaches to my bow and he's also an amputee and he says sometimes that crouch just isn't good enough and you actually need to stand up Um, and so I've used the decoy a couple times I've had some good luck with that Uh, just overall the hardest part is just being patient because you take a step and sometimes you lose your balance and you take like five steps or, you know, I've even blown stocks just by falling. And it's, it's, it's like, it's almost embarrassing. I, I, I sit up and the deer's just looking at me and be like, Oh my gosh, dude, go, go home. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, stocking, stocking is definitely the hardest. I almost feel like there's, there's gotta be just between the stuff we talked about in the first episode and then the element of stocking, I almost feel like there's some sort of niche industry right there to make make hunting legs for amputees. <laughs> like specific, like and I'm being dead serious with this. Like it would be, a, it's a super niche market, but like, yeah. you know, I feel like because there's, you know, there's all kinds of specialized limbs for for sports and for yeah. uh, swimming and running and things like that. I mean, I I feel like there could be a market for that almost to where you can, maybe there's some sort of like, there's some additional articulation that you can set, or there's some sort of, I don't know, like a, a, you know, a felt insert for Mm -hmm. your, for the, the bottom of it that you can easily swap out or. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I no don't get me wrong. I, I, when I lay, lay sleep at night, I sometimes think about how I can improve. Um, maybe even getting a little bit guyver on me. The problem is, is whatever, you know, when you're bringing more legs to carry with you in the the woods, it's not fun. I mean, to haul up an extra set of legs in the mountains. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some pieces of feet that I've tried. Um, Some of the thing is just like 
when you're standing so tall with my feet, I've thought about taking away the carbon uh, section and just having like a small platform. Um, but then by, by walking around that, which, you know, makes me about five, three, but walking around on that, there's no forgiveness in, in walking. And so sometimes it just, you, you know, it's like walking with two by four, um, just right below your knees. So that's, mm-hmm. I don't know how to explain that, but that's just kind of how it feels. Uh, there's, there's lots of, lots of different ways to, you know, try different things. You know, my buddy, you know, that we've, that I done this organization with disabled outdoorsmen, you know, he does it in a wheelchair and that just blows my mind. How do you stop an animal on a wheelchair? And it's, you know, it's just, you find a way by doing, trying different things, lots of failures. Um, and, uh, eventually you'll, you'll, uh, come through. I would actually love it if you could talk a little bit more about disabled outdoorsmen. I mean, I'm familiar through you. I'm, fam- I'm somewhat familiar with the organization, but I'd love it if you could, uh, Talk about the organization, the purpose, uh, ways people could get involved. Yeah, no, definitely. I would love to do, uh, talk about that. Yeah, Disabled Outdoorsman, it started out in Texas with my buddy Weston, uh, where his uh, cousin has a rare muscular dystrophy disease that um, typically people that have that disease, they only live to be, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old, really young. It just de- de- you know, almost degenerates all your your uh, muscular functions. And uh, this kid was 28, 30 years old and um, still going, you know, and, and one of the things about this, his cousin, his name is TJ, is that he's able to hunt massive whitetails uh, and he's able to hunt all the time, you know, with this disease. And the doctors felt like, you know, maybe that's why he's still alive is that he's finding a purpose. He's hunting. He's have a drive, and that's what's keeping him alive. So that's where the idea of disabled outdoorsmen came about: is creating a purpose for guys that, or girls, or anybody that has maybe in some sort of impairment. That you know, yeah, we we have this disability, but there's ways that we can get around that. And you come to find out, when you're out there doing things in the outdoors, you're you're really not going to think about you know, some of these troubles that you have with, you know, a prosthetic or a wheelchair or, or uh, paralyzation. So some of those things is why that organization started. But yeah, he, he'd uh, called me to come down and hunt Texas with him uh, to start off, you know, as their first, uh, you know, guinea pig in the organization. <laughs> and it just, it was awesome. Shot, shot a, uh, my first white tail with them. It was one of my, you know, still one of my biggest bucks to date. And, uh, you know, just a great organization as far as, you know, helping my confidence. And I thought, you know what, why don't we do this in Utah? Um, and so, you know, the next following year, we, we got some other people involved and did a, an elk hunt. And then from there, we made it official with uh, a few other guys in Brock and Mike and Keith. And uh, now a new kid, Weston, Rise and Shed. Uh, we've all kind of got together and, and started this uh Disabled Outdoorsman Utah, and we've taken quite a few people on ram hunts. Uh, we've done ice fishing trips. We've done, uh, we got some elk hunts planned. We have, uh, I'm taking a kid out uh, on an antelope hunt, uh, or sorry, he's not a kid, he's a, he's a man. Uh, and uh, <laughs> You're getting old, Sydney. you're getting old. Yeah, <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> So, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's growing like wildfire as far as like, uh, you know, we're getting a lot of good, um, 
uh, response from companies, you know, we're a 501c3, so we're able to, you know, be that uh, nonprofit that um, able to do those things. We're very grateful for those organizations that have helped us. And then volunteers, we get a lot of people that come up to us to volunteers because sometimes we need help with not just, you know, money or, or product, but just being able to help somebody, you know, maybe get it, help retrieve an animal or find an animal or no, you know, even being a, a liaison for, for property that we can take somebody on a wheelchair on. And so uh, those, all those things has made this possible. It's, it's definitely something that it's growing and uh, we're getting a lot of people uh, back us up. So it's, it's, it's heartwarming. It's, I mean, I, I wish I could just, I, mean, I love my job that I have, but it'd be so awesome to just say, Hey, my new job is I'm going to take somebody and change their life and take them hunting. So I, I am grateful for this opportunity. Where can, uh, if folks want to get some more information and get involved, where can they find disabled outdoorsmen? Well, if you go to disabledoutdoorsmanusa.com, that's our national headquarters. Our Utah chapter that um, I'm a part of is just called, if you go on Instagram for right now, it's do disabled outdoorsmen. So it's D-O underscore Utah. Um, but yeah, going through there, we share some of those things, messages that. And uh, yeah, we're just continuing to grow. It's, it's, it blows my mind. Um, it's just exciting to be a part of something like this. Awesome, man. So you may, you may remember this from all the way back in episode 23, but you know how I, you know, you've listened to enough of these, you know, how I like to, how I like to kind of wind these down, you know, say, shoot, say maybe you're at a, a triathlon event or you're just anywhere and, you know, somebody knows you're a hunter and they're like, man, you know, hunting, it's, it's incredible. Uh, you know, I've always wanted to do it. I think it's, I think it's so cool, man, but I don't know, you know, I don't have any background in it. I don't have any history doing this. I don't even know anyone to ask about it. Like, I'm not sure this is something I can do. What would you, what would you say to that person? Oh man. Yeah. That, I, I get that all the time, especially with amputees, um, guys, uh, amputees, they, they honestly, it's a, it's a confidence thing more than anything. It's not a physical thing. It's not, you know, I don't have the right fancy foot. Um, it's really just a confidence thing and to build confidence. It doesn't something that doesn't happen overnight. Just like me, when I was training for an Ironman or even, you know, trying, you know, to hunt an animal that I'm not familiar with, I, it's always good to have a mentor to talk to. Um, and ask a lot of questions and, and, and even, even having multiple mentors, you don't just need one guy. Cause sometimes that guy got, might get sick of you. <laughs> so uh, I would, I would say to find that person to ask lots of questions and then just, uh, just go out there and, and do it. Um, the biggest thing I tell amputees is it's good to go with somebody, but it's better to go by yourself just because it's going to give you, it's going to prove to yourself that you can do something. Of course, tell someone where you're going. You don't want to get lost. <laughs> but uh, I, I use trekking poles. I use, you know, a big heavy backpack and I just go um, and I just learn something about myself, whether, you know, areas that I feel good at, you know, hiking in or not hiking in. And uh, over time, it, it gets to a point where I don't even think about, you know, going, you know, miles into the mountains and just sleeping in the dirt. It doesn't phase me where, you know, years and years ago, I'd be like, oh, my gosh, that's. That's crazy to, to 
just go out in the boonies and not tell anyone <laughs> what you're doing. Well, Sydney, where can folks, uh, if they want to follow along with the uh, triathlon and the hunting adventures and, and all the stuff you got going on, where can they, uh, where can they follow you? Well, I first, I got to apologize. Like if, if you guys want to see some of my triathlon stuff, it's going to be old stuff because like this COVID stuff, it sucks. I didn't have one year, one race this year. So uh, if, if you like hunting, which I'm assuming if you're following, following uh, this podcast, then uh, that's sorry. That's all that's going through my feet <laughs> is hunting. But uh, I, you know, I'm on, I'm on uh, um, Facebook, Sydney Smith, S-I-D-N-E-Y. I'm probably the only amputee that's name is Sydney Smith. So I'm sure you can find me that way. So click, click on the picture and look at the legs to make sure it's you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, of course. Like, Oh my gosh. That, that guy sounds ugly. Cause his voice sounds beautiful. That can't be him. Oh wait, his legs. That looks right. So, <laughs> uh, and then, uh, Instagram is try no feet, uh, T R I, um, underscore no feet. Still one of my favorite ever Instagram names to date. Um, I remember we talked about that in the, in the first episode. Like that's why I started. I'm like, this guy has the greatest damn Instagram name I have ever seen. <laughs> it's funny. I've had people ask me like, well, what does it mean? Try like, try like triathlon or try it. Like, Hey, go ahead and try it. Try what it's like to have no feet. And I just tell them whatever you want it to be, man. <laughs> whatever you want it to be. So is it like, yeah, is it like triathlon or is it try no feet? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it is both. It is whatever you want. Um, awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, hopping back on. I'm really glad we got a chance to catch up again. Hey, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Uh, and good luck on your, your, uh, your, your Arizona strip bowl, man. That's going to be awesome. And I'm sure it's going to be a great experience for you. I know you worked hard for that. So, uh, I wish you the best of luck on that. I appreciate it, man. Gets my heart racing every time I start thinking about it. So I bet. (sighs) All right, y'all that'll do it for this episode of the wild initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at the wildinitiative.com slash one sixty four. get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. That'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time, but until then, I hope this podcast inspired you to get involved, get outdoors and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from the Wild Initiative family, and more. 